0: The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. We greet you as we gather this morning in worship here at Marsh Chapel. Whether you are here present with us in the nave at 735 Commonwealth Avenue, are joining us over airwaves on WBUR 90.9 FM throughout New England, or joining us around the globe streaming live on the internet at WBUR.org. Greetings this morning. We bear a particular greeting this morning to the Reverend Dr. David Jacobson, professor of homiletics here at the Boston University School of Theology, as he participates in our summer preacher series here in August. We greet him and uh, pray for him as he bears the word among us this morning. We bear greetings on the re- on behalf of our dean, the Reverend Dr. Robert Allen Hill, as he is away in these summer months and look forward to him, to him rejoining us in two short weeks. Now let us stand as we are able in the praise of God. Let us pray. Grant to us, Lord, we pray, the spirit to think and do always those things that are right, that we who cannot exist without you may by you be enabled to live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Please be seated. Father, you are always present. Forgive us for not reflecting your faithfulness. Jesus, you are always self-giving. Forgive us for living for ourselves. Holy Spirit, you always lead us forward. Forgive us for holding back. We join our hearts in silent prayer of confession during the singing of the Kyrie. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thanks be to God.
1: A lesson from the second book of Samuel, chapter 18. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all the commanders concerning Absalom. So the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. The men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David, and the slaughter there was great on that day, 20,000 men. The battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest claimed more victims that day than the sword. Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. His head caught fast in the oak, and he was left hanging between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. And ten young men, Joab's armor-bearers, surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good tidings from my lord the king, for the Lord has vindicated you this day. "'delivering you from the power of all who rose up against you.' "'The king said to the Cushite, "'Is it well with the young man Absalom?' "'The Cushite answered, "'May the enemies of my lord the king "'and all who rise up to do you harm "'be like that young man.' "'The king was deeply moved "'and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. "'And as he went, he said, "'O my son Absalom,' My son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
0: Let us say together verses from Psalm 130 with the antiphon. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, O Lord, should mark my iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is great power to redeem. It is he who will redeem Israel
2: from all its iniquities.
3: Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair He was in the wilderness for forty days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited upon him. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. Mark's gospel begins with a simple superscription to chapter 1, the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. This word, good news, is the same as our word for gospel. Here, it is no literary designation, as in the Gospel of Mark. Rather, it's a word, evangelion, which means good news. When the person we call Mark begins this writing, he intends to communicate evangelion, the good news of Jesus Christ. But Mark's good news is not the kind of chirpy news you'll find nestled in the pages of a Reader's Digest. It's also not that warm and fuzzy feature that the networks tuck in at the end of the nightly newscast, either. Mark's gospel of Jesus Christ, his good news, is apocalyptic. Mark offers an apocalyptic gospel. Now, to us in this great liberal chapel, such news may not sound good at all. We late moderns may be inclined to think of apocalyptic not as good, but as primitive, perhaps some detachable feature of early Christianity that we can either take or leave. For those of us used to a Christianity that is reasonable or plausible, apocalyptic sounds more like the crazy relative we keep hidden away in the attic. We know we're related, but well, it all just seems just a little too crazy to take seriously, let alone talk about in public. So when Mark offers the beginning of his apocalyptic gospel of Jesus, we might just be inclined to demur. However, a good century of critical biblical scholarship has been consistent on this point. The high water of 19th century liberalism believed that the kingdom of God, the gospel Jesus preached, was about the inexorable march toward progress of the brotherhood of man under the fatherhood of God. But the critical work of scholars, biblical scholars, like Johannes Weiss and Albert Schweitzer made that 19th century liberal view untenable. These scholars reminded biblical interpreters that Jesus' gospel was no Cover for the liberal myth of progress. Jesus' view of God's kingdom and its gospel, they said, was apocalyptic, something strange to our modern ears. Decades later, the great biblical scholar Rudolf Bultmann conceded so much. Our scientific world, he said, had no room for miracles or three-tiered universes of heaven above, earth, and hell below. Faithful Christians, Bultmann said, would need to learn to demythologize this unwieldy apocalyptic message of Jesus. But then, of course, Boltmann's own student, a scholar named Ernst Kasemann, seemed to push this apocalyptic problem back to the center. Kasemann, a few years later, argued that the apocalyptic view was not easily dispensed with In fact, he called apocalyptic the mother of all Christian theology. The mother. Well, now that hits close to home. We might be tempted to keep a friendly distance to this ancient apocalyptic thinking. What reasonable and morally sensitive person today has need of mythological horsemen, stories of rapture and being left behind, or cosmic conflagration? True enough, some apocalyptic apocalyptic texts are simply problematic, and Christians need to find ways to reinterpret them. But the core of Casamon's argument about apocalyptic's motherly role in the Christian faith has its point, too. The gospel is, in the end, about Jesus' death and resurrection. And how can we speak of resurrection apart from the apocalyptic worldview which gave it currency in the Jewish world in which Christianity emerged. For those of us who listen for that gospel in a late modern context, we just can't write off mother. So perhaps the problem is really a lack of precision about what exactly makes Mark's gospel apocalyptic. While the spectacular visions of apocalyptic literature are hard to ignore, lately scholars have been pointing to what apocalypses do. The word apocalypse itself means not burning judgment or cosmic catastrophe. What apocalypse means in Greek is to reveal. Apocalypses are about divine revelation. A brilliant scholar of apocalyptic literature, Christopher Rowland, made just such a case a couple of decades ago. He titled his book on apocalyptic literature, The Open Heaven. Apocalypses reveal something about God, something that gives a perspective in the midst of life in chaos. Other scholars point out that an apocalypse is a genre of what is called revelatory literature. Again, what makes an apocalypse apocalyptic is its capacity to reveal. So the purpose of apocalyptic literature is to disclose something from a transcendent perspective and in a way that helps make sense of life's difficult anomalies. So in the Jewish and emerging Christian world, apocalyptic writings are an at least four-century-long dialogue about the righteousness of God from the standpoint of some problem of theodicy. And it asks questions like these. How can God be just or righteous when these awful Gentiles have destroyed the temple? How can God be just or righteous and these Greeks force us to abandon our traditional ways around Sabbath circumcision and obedience to divine law? How can God be just when those who act in God's name are persecuted and killed by those idolatrous Romans? How can God be just when the righteous dead never receive any vindication in this world that is now so clearly in the grip of anti-divine forces? These are the kinds of profound questions of theodicy and the righteousness of God that apocalyptic writers like Mark ask. So now we come to Mark's Gospel. Just what exactly makes Mark's version of the Good News so apocalyptic? On a general level, throughout the whole book, we can see some of the more spectacular elements of apocalyptic throughout the whole Mark and story. When In verse 15, Jesus comes preaching the coming kingdom of God's reign. He announces it as gospel good news of God. And what he means by this is demonstrated in his Galilean ministry of kingdom proclamation that follows in the subsequent chapters. Jesus heals the sick as the sign of a dawning kingdom. Jesus casts out demons with apocalyptic authority. Jesus forgives sins, offering God's end-time mercy even now in his Galilean ministry. And when Jesus feeds people, though they start with just a few loaves and fish, there is more than enough and everyone is filled, a sign of the eschatological banquet. Not even nature escapes his concern. Jesus contends with apocalyptic forces as he walks miraculously over those waters of chaos and rebukes and silences demonic storms with merely his word of command. With all these elements of the Mark and Gospel story we can see, this apocalyptic world is not just some neutral space of choice and human freedom— Elements of human and natural life are vividly portrayed as being in the thrall of cosmic evil. Demons, forces, principalities, and powers, as Paul might say. God's good earth has been corrupted by evil forces that require some strong one to overcome. And this is where we see the importance of Mark's apocalyptic revelation as the beginning of his Gospel. Right here, in this 15-verse prologue to the Gospel of Mark, Mark includes his crucial moment of apocalyptic revelation. Oh, in the first few verses, Mark has us focused on John the Baptist, an end-time prophet sent to prepare the way. But even John confesses, for all the powerful signs of his ministry of repentance, that a stronger one, a mightier one, is still coming. And then appears Jesus. The text words it this way, and it came to pass in those days. Those days. That's end time talk. And when Jesus appears, in verses 9 to 11, he too is baptized by John, just like all the Judean crowds, except except that when Jesus comes up from the water, what Jesus sees and hears in these early verses of Mark is his own apocalyptic vision. The heavens are opened, a dove descends, and then a divine voice that only he and we readers get to hear. You are my son, the beloved. In you I am well pleased. This is an apocalyptic moment of revelation replete with open heavens, cosmic symbols, and heavenly voices. And we who hear this text are privy to Jesus' own revelation, as is no other character in the Markan text. We and Jesus know that Jesus has a messianic prophetic identity and mission, and he sets out into this difficult apocalyptic world and he does so in light of this divine revelation he's received, in light of this mysterious, transcendent perspective. Please note further what the apocalyptic elements of this revelation point to. First, the heavens are not merely opened. They are ripped apart. "Schizomenus," the text says in Greek. God in this apocalyptic revelation is in the business of breaking down barriers. As Duke biblical scholar Joel Marcus puts it, there's a gracious gash in the universe from now on. God has committed God's self to entering this broken world to fulfill God's kingdom purposes. Second, when the dove descends, it's not just some pretty symbol. The language of the dove goes all the way back to God's original purposes at creation, where the spirit broods over the waters in anticipation of God's creative act. God is not yet through with this broken created order. And the oral disclosure of God's relation to Jesus? This is language of prophetic anointment and messianic kingship that reminds us of all the promises of God in the Hebrew Bible, the Psalms, and the prophet Isaiah too. What's apocalyptic at the beginning of Mark's Gospel is that God reveals God's self, God's purposes, and Jesus' otherwise secret, mysterious identity. We hearers are right there at the beginning of Mark's gospel, given a transcendent perspective on the 16-chapter apocalyptic struggle that is about to ensue in Mark. What's the point? In the midst of God's good creation, which is nonetheless in the thrall of anti-divine forces, God rips open the heavens and places God's imprimatur on Jesus in such a way that Jesus and we readers are privy to this transcendent perspective, we now know, even in the midst of life's most hellish conditions, that God through Jesus is committed to the fight. God is revealed as ripping open heavens to break the boundaries that give cosmic evil the upper hand. Now, of course, Mark's strange vision of Jesus' significance may still just seem too far out to us. Apart from movies, books, and a few sectarian groups, our everyday world doesn't seem all that crazy for apocalyptic. In fact, we here probably live our lives largely in the light of reason and more or less in relative comfort. Mark may offer his apocalyptic gospel, but on the whole, our world, our late modern reality, is not buying. Mark may well defer to Jesus the exorcist, but when we're faced with struggles of mind or spirit, we late moderns are much more likely to refer to a psychologist or a medical professional. Mark's Jesus may celebrate eschatological banquets of his apocalyptic kingdom, where all are miraculously fed, but for us, these matters are better left for the rational adjustment of public policy on food, agricultural production, or foreign aid. Jesus may rebuke storm demons in Mark and silence the wind, but we're still far more likely to consult the Weather Channel and its talk of low-pressure systems and varying jet streams as we deal with matters meteorological. In the end, it seems Boltmann was right. Our worlds are different and may not be immediately amenable to Mark's apocalyptic gospel of Jesus. But on a second look, we may still find our reasonable worlds interrupted by intractable evil. Personally, we can experience this with the struggle with disease. For all our progress against cancer, there still seems to be something of a strange virulence to it. The body turned against itself. Oh, we can describe cancer as a biological process, but as human beings, we nonetheless feel compelled to, quote, wage a war against it, to fight it as if it were something more. Socially, we bump into this with the mysteries of our life together, say, for example, the inability to find ways of even talking with each other about solving problems, like gun violence after another massacre of innocents, where we can not only not do something but even have trouble imagining talking about doing something. In such moments, we may feel that we are in the grip of something that is bigger and different than our capacity to reason or act as free persons. And at the broadest level of our shared humanity in this world, there are also those powerful experiences of corporate evil that force us to recognize the very limits of enlightened reason among free citizens to do what is necessary. The 20th century was supposed to be the triumph of reason, technology, and astounding feats of human accomplishment. And at the same time, it was also the century of repeated bloody wars and a Holocaust. And for all the talk of never again in both warfare and silence about mass extermination, the incomprehensible bloody trail marches forward to Cambodia the Balkans, and beyond. Is it any wonder that Quebec General Romeo Dallaire, the head of the UN forces in Rwanda in the 1990s, mysteriously titled his own book about that awful event, Shake Hands with the Devil, The Failure of Humanity in Rwanda? It seems even now we still experience evil in just such a mysterious way. Oh, we may not have the same mythology, but we still deal with the mystery of intractable evil, ask questions of our still mysterious selves, and yes, pose questions of theodicy to a mysterious God. And here, Mark's apocalyptic gospel still registers, good news for a creation gone awry. Good news in the face of the struggle, even with intractable evil. And the good news is this, in the face of even those realities, God has not given up, but comes closer. In Jesus' baptism, the apocalyptic news revealed is that God is not staying behind the cosmic curtain of the heavens. God, it seems, has transgressed the very boundary between heaven and earth. In Jesus, God has been mysteriously revealed as the uncontainable other. In Jesus, God has been mysteriously revealed not as this one who is holy and separate, but as one who has come to us in eternal otherness. This God in Jesus is revealed as coming close with a divinely authorized risky love that leads all the way to a cross. This is no triumphant fix-it God. It is also not an aloof God of aseity and impassibility. This is a God who apocalyptically reveals God's self precisely as the mystery for us in the face of broken realities. Canadian theologian Douglas John Hall captures this apocalyptic mystery in a helpful way, and here I paraphrase him. God's revealing is simultaneously a veiling and an unveiling. God conceals God's self under the opposite of what both religion and reason imagine God to be, namely the Almighty, the Majestic Transcendent, the Absolutely Other. God's otherness, Paul says, is not to be found in God's absolute distance from us, but in God's willed and costly proximity to us. In her article, Preaching to Horror Struck People, Rebecca Eckert saw a deep connection between Hall's thoughts about the mysterious revelation of God's otherness in this risky proximate love and a story about Victor Mugnangarere. Victor is described years later in a newspaper report about his actions during the Rwandan genocide. Amidst the bloody context of extermination in the 1990s, we hear this unexpected news story of Victor's risky proximity. Victor, a Catholic lay counselor married to a Tutsi woman, used creative tactics to save the lives of about 270 people. Dressed up as a priest and doling out bottles of whiskey and wine to soldiers at checkpoints, he shuttled carloads of children, women, and men to safety at the Hotel de Mille Collines in Kigali. I decided that I preferred to die saving people, said Victor. Tutsis and Hutus are all children of God. This kind of risk, risky proximity though is never just for times of extreme social and political duress. It is also for personal lives lived under difficult circumstances. Reverend Samuel DeWitt Proctor, B.U. grad, eminent preacher, tells the story of a mother who, quote, working for Mrs. Cartwright from sunup to sundown every day and then coming home to cook and do laundry for her own children without a mate or the inspiration of a faithful companion. We saw that, Proctor said, and... We heard her singing Zion's songs in the dark. This revelation of a God who in Jesus rips open heaven to come close, to stay close, is itself the core of Mark's apocalyptic gospel. And it's one that Mark begins his gospel with to show God's loving abandon for this good creation gone awry. It is not an apocalyptic gospel of easy answers. It is, however, a word about God's love in risky proximity in the midst of darkness. In the early 20th century, a group of artists formed a collective in a small community just north of the German city of Bremen. The town of Wapswede was of no great repute. It sat on the edge of a long, sparsely inhabited, swamp-like region known as the Teufelsmoor, the Devil's Moor. One artist, a painter in the collective, crafted a painting he called The Sower. In the picture, the sower casts his seed on the ground. It's a typical motif and theme in painting from the period, But this artist sower casts his seed across the landscape he came to know in Vopsvede, the devil's moor. And as he does so, the sower casts his seed in the dark, but toward a small dawning light. I suspect the writer of the first gospel written would have understood Mark's Jesus offers the beginning of his apocalyptic gospel. It is a song in the darkness, a seed cast across a dire landscape. And yet, amidst the darkness, his gospel speaks a promise of dawning light. Thank mm-hmm.
4: advised, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. So let us heed his advice and pray. You are welcome to stand, remain seated, come forward to kneel at the altar rail, or however the Spirit moves you. Now let us sing together hymn 473, Lead Me, Lord. Heavenly Father, with all that is within us, we praise your holy name. For you have forgiven us, healed us, and redeemed us. Your love endures forever. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love for us. And as far as the east is from the west, so far you have removed our sins from us. Thank you, compassionate and gracious Lord, for your mercy is immeasurable. We need your abundant mercy for we have sinned. We have spoken words of slander instead of truth, words of ridicule instead of encouragement, and words of anger instead of understanding and forgiveness. And those are just the sins we have committed by speaking. We ask you to forgive all of our sins, and we ask the heavenly spirit to enter our hearts. We pray for renewal so that we may be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving as God in Christ has forgiven us. Help us to lead a life of love, just as you have loved us. We call on you to abide with us, Holy Father. We pray for our local community and our country. We pray for peace. We pray for our country's leaders as well as the leaders throughout the world. Touch their hearts and renew their spirits to work together to make peace a priority. Help us all to be more tolerant and accepting. We pray for healing. Abide with those who can only stand by as their loved ones struggle with mental illness, the fog of their twilight years, fatal illnesses, and the aftermath of violence. Help them to realize that they aren't helpless. You are their refuge and strength. Out of the depths of our worries and fears, we pray to you, Lord, Hear our prayers and confession, for we offer them with a confidence in your unfailing love and power of full redemption. In the name of the true bread from heaven, the bread of life, Jesus Christ, amen. And now as a community of faith, we join together to pray as our Lord taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come,
0: The peace of the Lord be always with you. We greet you once again here in the nave of Marsh Chapel and thank Dr. Jacobson for bearing the word in our midst this morning. We hope you'll take a moment to put your name and contact information in the red books found along the center of the aisle of each pew so that we can get to know you better and help you get to know one another better throughout the coming week. And if you'd pass that along to your neighbors so that they can let us know that they're here too, that would be most helpful. We uh, would encourage you to keep an eye to the chapel website, bu.edu/chapel for all of our upcoming services and activities. More will be posted there as we come toward the end of summer and the beginning of the academic term looms. And you will find also there the opportunity for online giving. As the ushers move among us and we make our gifts and offerings, we would invite you to meditate upon James McMillan's setting of Psalm 96 entitled, A New Song. Now walk in love as Christ loves us, an offering and sacrifice to God.
2: son, we know good
0: news. Consecrate these gifts to your service and bless the givers that through your spirit, we may share good news with all the world. Amen.
3: now into the world trusting God and God's good news in Jesus Christ. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen.